The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Faroz and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces. Coming up, we have Ece Temelkuren on the Turkish elections, Lara Prendergast on Millennial Millies, a new voter demographic, and Aidan Hartley on Surviving a Drought. First up, Ece Temelkuren. Kılıçdaroğlu is a pronunciation nightmare for the non-Turkish. Yet after this Sunday's presidential elections, international news presenters who have struggled for 20 years with President Erdogan's soft G might have to work harder to articulate the name of the social democrat leader of opposition. You may call him Mr. Kemal, that's his first name, until he wins, I've been saying to journalist friends. It's the kind of simplification that people from complex non-Western countries are self-trained to give so our maddening realities can be better understood. To feel Turkey, imagine the acute polarization during the Brexit referendum continuing for 20 years. Add to that a far more ruthless Trump with political genius and Islamist aspirations. This is what we do, this is what we say. And since March, when the election campaign for the presidency and parliament began, my line has been quite simple. Either Mr. Kemal wins against Erdogan or we lose the country for good. This is the final countdown. If Turkey's 20-year one-man rule does not end on Sunday, even the apologists for Erdogan would agree that no political leader can challenge him afterwards. The country will become unlivable, not only for the disobedient like myself, I left in 2016 after my criticism of President cost me my job as a journalist, but for anybody who is not submissive enough. Already famous for his illegal purges of political rivals and critics, Erdogan has been hinting at imprisonment, or worse, of Mr. Kemal. Devlet Bahçeli, a key Erdogan ally and leader of the far-right Nationalist Movement Party, told a rally that opposition traitors deserve bullets in their bodies. The president's supporters have frequently tried to attack Mr. Kemal on the campaign trail, and this week, Ekrem Imamoglu, Mr. Kemal's vice presidential candidate, was pelted with stones. Erdogan naturally dismissed the violence as staged. Other members of the broad nation alliance of six opposition parties that Mr. Kemal represents have been attacked too, Two weeks ago, Meral Akşener, the leader of the second biggest party in coalition, brandished the spent bullets that were shot at her party building. She addressed Erdogan directly in her speech, saying, these bullets will not stop us. In the shadow of violence and despite smear campaigns, open threats and classic attempts at water suppression, including moves to disqualify the survivors of the recent earthquake who are likely to vote against Erdogan, Mr. Kemal is keeping his focus on the credo of his political campaign. And that credo is radical love in politics. 
an approach successfully used by Imamoglu, who managed to win Istanbul's mayoral elections despite Erdogan's attempts to rig the system against him. The gist of radical love is to target the authoritarian leader, yet to smother his supporters with love, so that the polarization that he feeds on become irrelevant. At the heart of the strategy lies the promise of no political revenge directed at Erdogan's backers in case of a win. So if Mr. Kemal overcomes all the hurdles to become Turkey's next president, he will show the way to get rid of a supposedly untouchable autocrat through democratic means. The most dependable opinion polls show that Mr. Kemal ahead by 2 or 3 percent. However, wide-scale election fraud by Erdogan supporters is almost a tradition in Turkey. Talking about the government's vote theft has become natural. But there is one thing none of us wants to talk about and just think in silence. An assassination. Mr. Kemal hinted at the possibility by sharing an old video of his saying, the money the government has stolen and is afraid of losing is too much. So if something happens to me, it is my last will to you to go after the money stolen from the people of Turkey. The country, founded in 1923, is about to choose its destiny in its second century. Will it be an open-air prison run by a mafioso-style leader, or will Turkey return to her usual insanity by re-adopting the parliamentarian regime? It won't be heaven if Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu wins, but at least the doors of the hell will be closed if Erdogan loses. That was Ece Temelkuren. Next, Lara Prendergast. An election looms and political parties are already talking voter demographics. Every few years, the wonks of Westminster pick a social stereotype and decide it represents a crucial group of swing voters. We've had Mondeo Man, Waitrose Woman and Pebble Dash Person. Who will it be in 2024? It could be Dino, a snooty term used to describe aspirational lower middle class blokes. Dino is proud to own a new-built house, a car bought on finance, and a perfect set of pearly whites. He's had a bit of a tricky time recently, watching interest rates shoot up. Dino might have once voted Tory from his red wall seat, although after that Liz Trust business, he's not so sure. Can I be presumptuous and try to paint a slightly patronising portrait of a member of another group which both main parties seem already to be targeting? even if they haven't yet given her a name. She is Millennial Millie. She's aged between 26 to 35, and is a millennial, yes, but also a blur baby, a spice girl, a groovy chick. She was brought up to believe that the world would offer her so much if she worked hard. She graduated either just before, during or after the financial crash of 2008. Since then, She's found the world a much more alarming place than anyone promised her it would be. She is entitled, cultured, and more than a little naive. Her Vajra trainers are vegan, her Ghani dress is sustainable. If you're thinking there can't be too many Millies out there, spend 10 minutes on Instagram. Her parents own a home, but she doesn't. Neither do many of her pals. Those who do have done so in large part because their family helped with the mortgage. She tries not to feel too bitter about this. At least her landlord let her repaint the kitchen. 
With good friends and a good degree, Millie feels hashtag blessed. It's becoming clear, however, that this only gets her so far, particularly when she's up against falling wages, an asset bubble and the cost of a flat white. She would like to be open-minded metropolitan waitrose woman, and yet life doesn't seem to be going that way. Her social life largely exists on the apps. Her guru is Dolly Alderton, the Sunday Times' agony aunt, who each week offers wise, kind-hearted counsel about Millie's predicament. This week, she read in the Times, she loves the Times, that for a middle-class family, affluence isn't what it once was. To have a comfortable lifestyle as her parents did, to have a comfortable lifestyle as her parents did, Millie and her partner, wherever he or she may be, need to both earn at least £100,000 a year. She is nowhere near that. Millie is a home counties girl in search of a sense of home. Dino would tell her to cheer up love, even if he wouldn't be so gauche as to wolf whistle. He has learnt the lessons of me too. At least Dino owns a house, Millie thinks, even if it is a new build. It goes without saying she is a bit of a snob. At least nobody can ever take that away from her. You probably don't feel too sorry for her, but what matters politically is that she feels sorry for herself. Perhaps you know Emily. I suspect many women in their late 20s to mid 30s can recognise elements of her. Not every millennial woman wants to get married, buy a house and have children, but many do want some stability and might vote for whoever promises to offer it. Who might? If the Tories had any sense, they would try to, because younger women become older women, who traditionally tend to be quite conservative. Just ask Mumsnet. Millennial women, though, are starting to buck that trend. Fertility rates are falling, as is home ownership. If mild-mannered middle-class women can't be relied on to vote Tory further down the line, who on earth can? Millie's blue wall parents talk about voting Lib Dem in solidarity, but she knows they'll most likely end up voting Conservative. Could she do the same? All that she wants is what they had. She doesn't feel better off after more than a decade of the Tories, even if people keep telling her she is. Brexit came as a bit of a shock. She didn't like Boris, quite likes Rishi. In particular, she liked the recent spring budget announcement that working parents of children aged nine months to three years would soon be eligible for 30 hours of free childcare. As it turns out, over a quarter of the population in the 100 most marginal Tory seats are parents with a child under the age of 11. Mummy Millies. And they aren't happy either. No wonder the Tories and Labour see childcare as an important political battleground. Labour is yet to announce its childcare policies, although Millie feels optimistic that there might be even more promised. Is she being targeted? She rather likes it, if so. She can see herself voting for Labour, and Keir, with his faintly Bridget Jones energy. She tells herself, and her friends, that he is the centrist choice. And if she chooses not to vote Tory, she won't be alone. Only 13% of 25-49 year olds would, and only 11% of 18-24 year olds, the TikTok Gen Z lot. Compare that to 1987, when Margaret Thatcher won her third term. 39% of 25 to 34 year olds voted Tory. More astonishingly, 37% of 18 to 24 year olds did too. Millie pictures herself one day taking her child to the playground, her house keys jingling in her pocket, 
feeling rather grown up. She's suddenly a swing voter and delighted to feel a little important. And that's why it wouldn't be silly to try to win over Millennial Millie. That was Lara Prendergast. And finally, Aidan Hartley. I realised the worst drought of this generation was at last over this morning when two Samburu gentlemen arrived on the farm asking to buy rams. My nomadic neighbours sense very well when it's time to put a tup in with the flock. In just this month, a full moon and the alignment of Lokir I and Lakira Dorop, the planets Jupiter and Venus, had brought six inches of downpours, equal to almost all of last year's rain and half the precipitation in 2021. As Mr Lemartile crouched behind my Dorper rams, happily dandling their testicles for size and girth, we caught up on gossip and everybody was in such a good mood there was no need to bargain over prices. Flinging his red toga over his shoulder, Lemartile spat in the dust, punched numbers into his smartphone and paid his bill with M-Pesa digital money. On the roads in recent days, I've passed Samburu warriors wearing a new fashion of headdress with all their beads and dingly danglies, which is a mohawk of spikes that reminds me of the Statue of Liberty's seven-spiked crown. I suspect it's not in celebration of King Charles's coronation, but rather the lovely weather. In this corner of Africa, news of rain is part of a greeting. The lack of it is a shared burden or tragedy, and the arrival of it a source of unbridled happiness to be enjoyed by us all. Since the drought began on us 31 months ago, it has been most strange. The dry has hurt everybody across East Africa, yet there were downpours here and there, and the cliché in conversations was that the rain had been patchy. For us on the farm, we got hardly anything. I'd wake in the night and see storm lightning on the horizon, the dry thunder and booms, and it passed us by. I'd smell the almost erotic scent of petrichor, and yet it would pass by with a few tantalising drops and nothing, nothing more. This went on endlessly, month after month. The hard times in my life have come and gone, but few have lasted unbroken for close to three years. And of course, a man takes drought personally. It's an emasculation. At the start, I had a barn full of hay, a herd of fat cattle, a thousand fruit trees and a world of green grass. By the end, I had cows that looked like a BBC news bulletin about famine, an orchard of dead sticks and so much dust that it got in between our toes, in the bed and in our eyes. Drought is hard, expensive and very boring. You can't do anything in drought except spend money, if you have it, to get through it and keep your animals alive. All your plans go by the wayside and the only thing you can do is wait. One of my neighbours lost a thousand cows. Across northern Kenya, we've lost millions of animals, from sheep to even elephant. Yet now that it has rained and our dams are full and the grass is coming up in swords so green the chlorophyll hurts the unaccustomed eye, it's all over. The climate hysterics are saying that it was human action that caused this recent drought. Yet we've had dry spells every decade in a cycle going back that anybody can remember or record. This was a big one and now we're already forgetting what happened. It reminds me of William Blake. Drive your cart and plough over the bones of the dead. The bad times are gone, and as the healing amnesia about what has just happened sinks in, we tramp about in mud 
and stride through fields of mushrooms and the noises of crickets and frogs. Today there are bees swarming in the chimney, bees in the kitchen, bees in the bedroom. We have 50 hives on the farm, and most of them were abandoned during the long dry months. But this evening I walked around the trees where the hives hang, and every single one has been colonised once more. Every farmer takes a masochistic pleasure in the difficulty of the lives we choose to lead. I'm so grateful that there are seasons. As the great Kevin Costner says in the TV series Yellowstone, ranching is the only business where the goal is to break even, survive another season. Lord God, give us rain, and with a little luck, we'll do the rest. Amen. That was Aidan Hartley. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the episode, why not pick up a copy of the magazine to read more? I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next time.